Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast, where we explore the life and times of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and delve into the history of World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. Today we're sitting down with Laura Orr, the Director of Education at the Hampton Roads Naval Museum in Norfolk, Virginia. And we're going to be talking about some eyewitness accounts of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Laura, can you set the stage for us and outline the attack? The Japanese attack on December 7, 1941 came as a surprise to the sailors and marines stationed at Pearl Harbor. It began when six Japanese aircraft carriers launched 350 aircraft from their decks. And just before 8 a.m. Hawaiian time, they reached the skies of Oahu and they unleashed havoc against the naval base, the nearby Army Air Corps field, and several outlying fields owned by the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps. By then, all eight of the Pacific Fleet's battleships were sunk or damaged. In addition, eight other ships had been hit. Almost 200 planes had been destroyed on the ground or in the air. Luckily, none of the three American carriers were in port when the attack occurred. The attack lasted only 90 minutes, and approximately 2,400 Americans died. Now, we're going to be discussing a group of people who witnessed the attack that day. Some of them fought the Japanese, some rescued other service members, and some were actually killed in the attack. Can you start us off with Navy pilot Lieutenant Clarence Dickinson? Clarence Dickinson was a member of Scouting Squadron 6. It was a squadron aboard USS Enterprise. Now, Enterprise was not at Pearl Harbor on the day of the attack, but it was heading back to Pearl Harbor. And what happens before the aircraft carrier reaches the port is that many of the pilots will fly their planes back to Pearl before the carrier. That's what happened that morning. Dickinson and 17 other pilots from his squadron were returning to Pearl Harbor by air. And basically what happened is as he's going along, he's using his radio as a direction finder, and it was still broadcasting Hawaiian music from Honolulu. And suddenly he noticed a large cloud of smoke near his goal. He paid little attention to it at first, thinking that you know smoke clouds were normal above the Hawaiian Islands because the farmers would set fire to fields of sugarcane during harvest season. So it seemed a normal occurrence to the carefree dive bomber pilot. When Dickinson and his rear seat gunner were only three minutes from land, he finally noticed that the smoke cloud was not normal. Neither were the shell splashes that he was seeing. It couldn't be anybody practicing, not on a Sunday morning. Abruptly, he realized that the biggest smoke cloud was in Pearl Harbor itself. So at that moment, he realized an attack was taking place and he was actually flying right in the middle of it. Within minutes, he was surrounded by fighter planes from the Japanese Navy. They were shot at and his, his wingman was shot down. He saw his, the pilot bail out safely, but his rear seat gunner did not. A few of the fighters took on Dickinson and he started evasive action, but still his plane was hit a couple times. He checked on his rear seat gunner, hoping he was all right, and all of a sudden his rear seat gunner screamed. What Dickinson remembered was it was this scream that he had never heard before. It was this yell of agony and his rear seat gunner died right then. Dickinson lost control of the plane and he ended up bailing out. Luckily, he ended up without getting any major injuries, and he spent the next hour trying to get back to Ford Island, finally convincing a civilian couple to drive him most of the way. He remembered seeing everybody 
shooting at the enemy and he remembered how organized they were even with being surprised by this attack. So he actually met up with some of the other pilots from his squadron, they got some planes that weren't being used, and they went looking for the enemy. They flew four hours, they went over 200 miles, but they never found the Japanese that morning. If they had, they might very well have vitally damaged one or more of those Japanese carriers. So Dickinson had a unique aerial perspective of the attack. Um, can you tell us about Richard Fisk? Uh, he was a Marine who served aboard the USS West Virginia. Richard Fisk was 19 years old at the time of the attack. He was a Marine bugler. He served aboard USS West Virginia, which is a Colorado-class battleship, moored right in the middle of what's called Battleship Row. For Fisk, this was something of a family affair. His father actually served aboard another ship, and his brother was an Army medic who was assigned to Schofield Barracks in Honolulu. He joined the Marine Corps in 1940. He was stationed in Pearl Harbor in July of 1940, so he was there for almost a year and a half before the attack occurred. For Fisk, like most of the sailors and Marines, the day started quiet and mundane. He did everything he normally did. He sounded chow call, he ate some breakfast, he went up to the quarter deck to help the ship's naval bugler sound colors. They sounded first call at five minutes before eight that morning, and then he saw some airplanes coming down the channel. They thought it was a drill, so they didn't really react, just kind of figured, oh, we're going to have to get to our battle stations, it's another drill. But then there was a loud noise and a huge wave crashed over the side of the ship, actually washing Fisk to the other side of the ship. Two or three minutes later, his first sergeant came up on the quarterdeck soaking wet. The explosion had blown him completely out of his office and he yelled at the men to get to their battle stations. Fisk immediately went to the bridge, which was his battle station. Now, the captain of the West Virginia was on the bridge giving orders. He was shouting those orders to his crew by leaning over the railing of the bridge because there was no power left on the ship. Just after 8 o'clock, Fisk saw a couple bombs dropping toward the ship's fantail, but none of them hit. Then, another bomb hit just forward of the number 2 gun turret on USS Arizona, right next to their ship. Fisk remembered this. This is what he said. The next thing we heard was this hellacious noise, and we saw a big fireball. The bow of the Arizona came completely out of the water. She settled down and was one tremendous ball of fire. I never saw so much fire in my life. The concussion blew us against the forward part of the bridge, but Captain Benyon kept barking orders. Maybe five or six minutes later, we saw some more bombs coming down and we hit the deck. I was trying to dig a hole, but you can't do that in steel with your fingers. A bomb blast on the Tennessee right next door sent a rain of shrapnel onto Fisk's ship. Then he saw his captain get wounded, and a little bit while later he ended up dying. So about 9.30 that morning, the men abandoned ship. Fisk jumped overboard, and he swam to Ford Island. He ended up helping some of the other men who came off the ship get to the island. That afternoon, he had to help to protect some of the admiral's houses to make sure that there wouldn't be another attack, that none of them would be hit later in the day. And in the days following the attack, Fisk stood watches, he removed bodies, and he worked to help raise his ship. Quickly, he found out his father was safe on the USS Tangier on his ship, but it was actually two weeks before Fisk could confirm that his brother was also safe. So he was pretty fortunate his family was all accounted for. But I guess not every family was as lucky. Can you tell us about the Height brothers? 
Wes and Bud Height were two of the 1,177 men killed when the Arizona exploded. Among the other men who died aboard the ship were a father and son and 23 sets of brothers. The Height brothers came from California. They'd been in the Navy for a few years before the attack occurred. Machinist made second class, Wes Height, the younger of the two brothers, wrote a letter to his mother just a couple weeks before the attack on November 22nd from their station aboard the Arizona. This is what he said to his mother. Hello, Mom. This is your bad son again. Boy, how I've been catching hell for not writing. I don't know why you worry about us so much. If anything happened to us, you'd hear from the Navy first thing. I'm safer on this battle boat than I would be driving back and forth to work if I was home. Unfortunately, it was just two weeks after that when West would be proved wrong. The brothers were at their duty stations aboard USS Arizona on December 7, 1941. A couple weeks later, a telegram arrived at the Height household from the Chief of the Bureau of Navigation. It read, The Navy Department deeply regrets to inform you that your sons are missing following action in the performance of their duty and in the service of their country. The Department appreciates your great anxiety and will furnish you further information promptly when received. To prevent possible aid to our enemies, please do not divulge the name of their ship or their station. It wasn't until another month went by when they received a telegram confirming their worst fears, that both of the brothers had died. Their remains are still inside the wrecked ship, like so many others. That had to have been rough for a lot of families. Can you tell us about Tom Mahoney? He was a 19-year-old sailor aboard the seaplane tender USS Curtis. What did he remember about the attack? Tom Mahoney actually served aboard Curtis with his brother, Harold. That was something that was done a lot more in World War II, obviously, than today. It sounds like a pretty bad idea. They certainly learned that during World War II. USS Curtis was actually anchored at a distance from many of the other ships because their ship was loaded with 100,000 gallons of aviation fuel, bombs, shells, and torpedoes set for delivery to Wake and Midway Islands. So Mahoney was actually in the electrical shop aboard the ship when he heard loud explosions. He popped his head through a porthole just in time to see Japanese planes dropping bombs, torpedoes, and strafing everything of military value. He couldn't believe his eyes. He had no idea this attack was going to happen, just like all of these other sailors and marines. Now, just after 9 o'clock that morning, sailors aboard his ship managed to shoot down a Japanese plane, but it crashed into the, one of the ship's cranes and started burning. A few minutes later, they shot down another plane. Then they became, began firing at a dive bomber. A bomb from that plane hit Curtis in the, the vicinity of the crane that was already damaged, and it exploded below decks, setting the ship on fire. Mahoney spent the entire rest of the day, manning a fire hose, trying to save the ship along with the rest of the crew. They navigated through fire, smoke, and severely damaged areas of their ship, slipping and falling, finding gruesome discoveries along the way. At one point, Mahoney found five of his friends with whom he'd eaten breakfast just that morning, sitting in a half circle with their arms around each other, burned almost beyond recognition. It was sunset that day when the crew finally took a break from rescue operations and firefighting. And at this point, 
Tom Mahoney turned to the sailor next to him and he asked about his brother Harold. Their faces were covered with oil, grease, and soot. Mahoney wasn't sure who the sailor was that he was standing next to. And when he asked about his brother, the sailor replied, Well, who are you? He said, Well, I'm Tom Mahoney. Well, I'm your brother Harold, came the response from the sailor. And Tom remembered, We embraced and cried like the kids we were. I'm struck by how young so many of these men were at Pearl Harbor. You've also done some research about a young woman who was at Pearl Harbor. Now, during and after the attack, many of the wounded were sent to the U.S. Naval Hospital at Pearl Harbor. One of the nurses there was Lieutenant Ruth Erickson. Like many people stationed at Pearl Harbor, she thought initially Hawaii was a dream posting. That changed dramatically for her on December 7, 1941. What did she experience that day? Lieutenant Ruth Erickson was in her mid-twenties when the attack happened, and she'd actually worked the afternoon shift on Saturday, December 6th, so Sunday morning was to be her morning off. But several of the nurses were sitting in the dining room that morning having breakfast, talking over coffee, and then they heard the planes roaring overhead, and they figured again that it was just, they were just practicing. There was nothing to worry about. Since the reserves were often there for weekend training, they just didn't think too much about it at that point. But no sooner had they said this than they heard the loud, alien noises of bomb explosions. And Erickson remembered jumping out of her chair, running to the window to try to see what was happening, and she immediately saw a Japanese plane flying over their quarters. They were told to get into their uniforms and get to the hospital as fast as they can. She always remembered how dark it was when she ran out the door of her quarters to try to get to the hospital. There's so much smoke coming from the burning ships. She dashed across the street, she avoided shrapnel on the way, and she entered the hospital. It was a little before 8.30 when their first patient arrived. That man didn't make it. But as the day went on, more and more patients streamed in. They started getting burned patients. The sailors on one of the ships had managed to get their ship going, and they tried to maneuver it out of the channel. The ship couldn't make it, and it went aground right near the hospital where she was. And there was heavy oil on the water, but some of the men dove off the ship, and they tried to get to the hospital. So for hours, the nurses and doctors are treating these burned men, giving the most gravely injured patients sedatives to try to manage their pain. An unending stream of burned patients continued most of the day. She took just a short break that evening where Erickson showered, she ate some food, and then she rested just for a short while before going back to work in the surgical unit. It was a very long day, and it didn't end on December 7th. It went for days afterwards, weeks afterwards, trying to take care of the wounded. These accounts just represent a handful of people who were there. The attack on Pearl Harbor was truly devastating, but it wasn't the knockout blow the Japanese expected. These accounts you've talked about, though, really make the human cost clear, though. So what do historians mean when they say it could have been worse? If the attack had happened on any day other than a Sunday, it would have been much worse, because there would have been a lot more people on duty at their stations. So any of those ships that were sunk would have had a lot more people on them. Additionally, if any of the aircraft carriers had actually been in port at the time, that would have added thousands of people to the toll if those ships had been sunk as well. 
So in the end, if something like this was going to happen, the United States ended up being a little bit lucky that it wasn't worse. Okay, so a little bit of good fortune that day then, despite the tragedy. Now, you mentioned this earlier, that duty didn't end on December 8, 1941, the next day. Um, how long did rescue and salvage operations go on? Rescue and salvage operations actually went on for weeks, months, and years afterwards, if you think about it. Rescue operations actually took a few weeks. Um, by that point, there weren't a whole lot more people to rescue. Uh, there were a number of people who were trapped inside ships that had been turned over, and the rescuers worked very hard to save them, but didn't necessarily get to them in time. Uh, after that, they had to salvage whatever ships they could. Many of the ships were actually put back into commission just a few months after the attack. So it's another way that this attack was not as bad as it could have been, because those ships were mostly able to be salvaged and used again. There were only a few ships that couldn't be used and ended up not ever being brought back up. So what is the legacy of Pearl Harbor for the U.S. Navy today? I think when we look at Pearl Harbor, it obviously was a major loss for the United States. But I think what it did is it made the United States understand that you can't ignore what's going on in the rest of the world. Because for the 1920s and 1930s, the U.S. is isolationist. They don't want to get involved in world affairs. They're ignoring what goes on in Asia and Europe. And that comes back to be, obviously, a huge problem when the attack happens. I think the Navy and the United States in general and the military learned a lot from this attack and from the beginning of World War II and how that happened for the United States. Thanks so much, Laura, for sitting down with us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.